Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Gateway Community Church. My name is John Malella. I'm one of the elders here at Gateway. I'll be bringing the message to you today. Ed Allen, our senior pastor, is away, so you're stuck with me today. So really, thank you for coming. This would have been a superb day to sleep in. We all agree with that, and the fact that you have chosen to actually brave the weather and come here is, to me, it's amazing. And I hope and pray that it's worth it for you. So if you've been tracking with us the last few weeks, you know that we've been working through what we call the seven habits, the up, in, and out of our focus. The seven habits or seven practices are ways that we as a church keep our focus on what's important basically God and people. The last couple weeks, Ed talked about opening our lives to people in need. That's the O, opening our lives to people in need. He talked about what, what I call God's preferential treatment of the poor. So being open to caring for people that have less and how important that is for God. And it's actually all through the Bible, how God is always looking to take care of the poor because we know that very often the poor get the short end in this world. Uh, last week, Ed talked about uplifting God's character, and he said something really fascinating, and I think to a lot of people kind of counterintuitive. He talked about how Christianity is not really about how you behave. He said it's not really about how you act outwardly. What Christianity is about is a relationship with Jesus Christ that changes you inwardly which, of course, results in outward change. God is not the behavior police. What God is really after is changing what we love, changing our hearts, because what we love is what we are. And that's his goal for us. Ed also talked about holiness. He talked about how that's God's purpose. You know, God is holy. God is utterly different and he wants to share that with us so that we are changed inwardly. And because of this inward change, it results in outward change. We behave differently, but it's not the other way around. So today we're going to finish up the series with what I think is the capstone of the seven habits. And it's telling others about Jesus. We're at the T of the up, in, and out. Telling others about Jesus. I think this is one of the most difficult and yet exciting topics in all of Christianity. So why is it difficult? And I don't know about you, but whenever I've heard talks about what we call evangelism, evangel means good news, okay? So good newsing, how to good news people. Gospel is also a word that means good news, how to gospelize people. A lot of times from those talks, I've walked away kind of guilty and feeling inadequate. And I don't want to do that to anybody today, least of all myself. So we're going to take a different tack. Why is it difficult? This idea about telling people about Jesus, about sharing our faith, why is it so difficult? So it, in Wheaton College in 2015, there was a survey. Wheaton is uh, the, the Christian Harvard. <laughs> it's in Illinois. When they surveyed, nearly half of the students said that their biggest obstacle to sharing their faith was fear of what other people would think of them. Oh, I can relate to that. Their comments included things like, quote, I feel like I would be imposing my view on somebody. Or, I'm worried about losing a friendship. 
if I talk to my friend about Jesus. Or they'll think I'm being judgmental. And the next biggest obstacle was I feel inadequate in evangelistic interactions. That was almost half the people surveyed said that. And a quarter, 26% said, I just feel unprepared. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to do that. And I can relate to that. And maybe you can too. Now, one thing that's interesting is that most of them, people surveyed in the survey, said that, that having a relationship with Jesus is the best thing that could happen to somebody. But when 2,000 unchurched people in 2016 were surveyed, and they were asked, have you ever heard the benefits of being a Christian? 2,000 unchurched people. Have you ever heard the benefits of being a Christian? One-third responded yes. So that means two-thirds had never heard the benefits of what it's like to be a Christian, what it means. Now, everyone who's listening today, whether you're here in South Riding or on podcast, you're here because, think of it, somebody said something to you. Somewhere in your life, somebody told you about Jesus. You're here because somebody opened their mouth and invited you. And if you're connected to God today through Jesus Christ, it's because somebody told you about him. All of us here know something about the benefits of being a Christian, and yet it can be difficult to tell others. So here's what we're going to do today. We need a model. We need to see how this is done. How do you do this? How do we talk about Jesus with people that really don't know much about him or have the wrong idea of him or may not at first be interested? What we're going to do today is we're going to look at this magnificent passage of the Bible. We're in the book of Acts, chapter 17. We're going to watch an early follower of Jesus do this, the Apostle Paul. We're going to watch him share his faith with a sophisticated Northern Virginia audience. Sophisticated but curious. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to read chunks of the passage. I'm going to add some background, some context, so we understand it. And what I hope to learn are the four C's. We're going to look at the four C's of sharing your faith. And the first C we're going to look at, of course, is going to be connect. We're going to see how does Paul connect with the people he's talking to. That's the first C, connect. We're also going to see how he confronts those he speaks with, his connection, his confrontation. We're going to look at what Paul's cause is and what he cares about. So we're going to look at the connection, confrontation, the cause, and why care, why care about this. And in watching Paul do this, we'll hopefully learn how to do this ourselves. So pray with me, please. Let's pray. We need God with this. So, Lord, one of my concerns in speaking on this is that we would see this as just another thing to do, that our feelings of inadequacy would take over, and that we would walk out of here with something else on our shoulders, whereas I know, Lord, that you want this to be life-giving. I know that you you want us to see this today as privilege instead of burden. And you know our lives, God. You know how we are, we're frazzled. You know how we are, our lives are too full. Our pace is too fast. 
And we're so tempted to see anything additional as just another rock in our backpack. So Lord, you need to help us as we change our perspective on this and recognize the privilege that you are putting before us. So God, open our ears, open our hearts. Lord, use the words. We know they're just words, but if you use them, God, they're powerful. And we know that your word is powerful and can change us. So we ask you to please do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we pick this up in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. But Paul has been traveling. So Paul, one of the early followers of Jesus, was what we would call a missionary. He would travel place to place. And every place he would go to in in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Greece and Turkey mostly, he would plant churches. He would preach. He would go to a synagogue. He would talk to his fellow Jews and also Gentiles who were known as God-fearers. They were attracted to Judaism because of the monotheism and because of the, the ethical conduct. And he would gather people together, teach them about Jesus, and they would become believers. They would become followers of Jesus. And then Paul would, would move on to another place and do the same thing. So in the chapters before this, what we see in the, with the Apostle Paul is he's run into some, shall we say, conflict. There are people that are really not happy that he's preaching the Jesus message, and they're making themselves loud and clear. In some cases, what they're doing is they're trying to throw Paul into jail. They're accusing him of civic strife. Hey, this guy is bringing this message, and he's, he's making a mess. You know, we've got this nice, beautiful municipality, and he's trying to ruin it with this message. So Paul, who's actually on his way to Rome eventually, he decides he's going to go south, and he winds up in Athens, Greece, and he's going to wait. He's waiting for people to to actually come visit him. And we're going to pick this up in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them, his friends, waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. It says his spirit was provoked, or some translations say he was distressed. More on this later. So what Paul has done is he's now in the city of Athens, and he's walked around. He's taken a tour of the city, and he sees that there are lots and lots and lots of temples to different gods. More on this later. So we go on. It says, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what is this babbler trying to say? What does this babbler wish to say? I'm sure every preacher has experienced this. People that are hearing a message and saying, what is this guy trying to say? So that was Paul's uh, audience saying the same thing. Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Because as the text says, he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him, they took Paul, and they brought him to the Areopagus, which is a meeting place, a little more on that later, saying, Paul, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange ideas, some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. 
and then there's an aside that says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. We know from other parts of the Bible that Paul's practice, again, he'd go into a new place and he would go to a synagogue. He would engage his fellow Jews with the Jesus story. Paul was a Jew and he would talk to his fellow Jews and it made sense. Jesus is Jewish. I was having a conversation some years ago, back when I was younger, lived in New York, somebody who I worked with at, at a health club, this is a long time ago, and we were talking about Jesus, okay, and I happen to say, you know, if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, what could be more Jewish than believing in him? And the response I got was, I don't really want to have a fight with you. <laughs> that kind of ended it there. But that's what Paul would do. Paul would go into, there was a natural bridge. You know, Paul could talk to his fellow Jews and say, I want to tell you about the Messiah, Jesus. Did you know he was born in Bethlehem? Let's look at the scriptures. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, written 700 years before Jesus. It says Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Did you know the Messiah was going to suffer? He wasn't going to be this ruling king. He would suffer. Okay, Isaiah, hundreds of years before the, the present time, hundreds of years before Isaiah, chapter 52, 53, Isaiah the prophet wrote about a suffering Messiah, a suffering servant of God. It's right there. And the Psalms, the Psalms talk about how God would not abandon the Messiah to decay. In other words, that he would not stay dead. Paul had these natural bridges that he would use to talk to his fellow Jews. And that's what he would do. He would go into the synagogue and he would dialogue with them. The context was already there. But here we see something different. We see Paul move beyond the synagogue into the marketplace, what the Greeks would have called the agora. What was the marketplace? I think of, um, think of the Reston Town Center. You all know where that is? Okay, a little bit east, a little bit north. Reston Town Center, lots of stores, okay, lots of places to eat. Now picture the Reston Town Center with uh, not only stores and not only magnificent buildings, which some of them are pretty outstanding there, but picture it also with idols, uh, temples, let's say. So instead of Victoria's Secret, we've got the Temple of Aphrodite. Maybe it's not that much different than Victoria's Secret, is it? <laughs> we would have the Temple to Athena, okay, the, the goddess of wisdom, which Athens was named for, you would have temples for gods from Egypt, gods from Syria. Any god you can imagine would have a temple there. Now, Athenians are also known for a few things. They were excellent philosophers and rhetoricians. What that means is they liked to talk. They were masters of debate and persuasion. And they were also, well, all these temples, they were very religious. Now, how did they view their temples? This is interesting. Here's what one writer said, and I think this is worth quoting in full. One writer says, you know, most religious buildings today are intended for congregational worship, right? Groups of people get together on a regular basis to celebrate their God, reaffirm their faith, and receive spiritual comfort. That's not a bad description of a lot of churches, okay? Ancient Greek temples, though, were rarely used this way. They were meant to serve as homes for the individual god or goddess 
who protected and sustained the community. It was the needs of the God that were most important. They controlled the forces of nature, the sun and the rain, which nourished their crops, and the winds that drove their ships. And although generally benevolent, the gods could be quite capricious and were liable to turn against the community. So it was in everyone's interest to make sure that the gods, listen to this, that the gods should feel relaxed and at home. These temples, the gods' houses, were the finest, equipped with a staff of servants to look after their every need. They received daily offerings of food and drink, along with a proper share of the harvest, as well as a share in the profits of any trading or military activity. Do, do you get it? Okay. The gods were there to be served, to be placated, to be appeased. You know, in a way, this is the ancient Roman patronage system. It's like a business transaction. You give to the god, and he is supposed to take care of you. You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of The Godfather. The Godfather movies, I don't know if you're familiar with them. Classics, I definitely recommend them. So the way it worked in The Godfather is, if you need something, you go to the Don. I am now talking with my hands if you're doing the podcast. Okay, I'm allowed to do that. I am Italian-American. You go to the Don... And you give the Don, you, you pay him a little bit, a little bit off the top, you take care of him, and then the Don takes care of you. That's the way that works. It's a business transaction. You take care of the Don, the Don takes care of you. That's how these people approached religion. That's why they had all these temples to all these gods. Now, before we laugh at this, we have to admit if we think about it, isn't that how most people think of God? I do for God, and because I do for him, he owes me. And here's, here's what I mean by this. Don't most people think something like this? If I'm a good person, God will protect me. If I'm a good person, he'll bless me. Let me say this. Hold on. I don't want to get confused. There's a lot of truth in this. What I mean by is if you're following God's will, God's ways, a lot of times what that means is your, your hands will be open to receive from him. Instead of holding on to garbage, your hands will be open and you'll be able to receive from him. So there's a lot of, there's truth in this. There is truth that if we follow God's ways, we're open to being blessed. But what Paul saw and the way most people look at God is they look at it as a business transaction. There's no relationship. There was no relationship with these gods. And for most people, there's no relationship. I give you something, God. I follow the rules and you owe me. Can I say this? You know how you can tell what they really believe is how they act when things don't go well, when their lives get hard, when bad things happen to them. How do they react? I can't believe this is happening to me. I'm a good person. I don't deserve this. I never hurt anyone. We react with anger and confusion. And this is what Paul sees. And this is also the context of the people that we speak to and in which we find ourselves today. So Epicureans and Stoics, I want to talk just a tiny bit about that. Ancient Greek philosophies, okay, and you have, to, you have to know for most people in the ancient world, if they followed these, these were more like ways of life. They weren't just armchair. They were principles that they followed. And I'll say this, that these philosophies are still with us today. Epicureans, let me give you an example. They saw a lot of that temple stuff as superstition. 
Okay? They were too rich and sophisticated for, for what was going on in the temples. They were wealthy. They believed, you know what, if God exists, he's not really involved. He may be out there somewhere, but nobody could really know him. He's too remote if he's out there. He has not revealed himself. All this stuff, we're just grasping at straws. These are just people's best guesses. So, if God exists and he's not involved, this is what they thought. If that's the case, the best way to live is to avoid pain and maximize pleasure. To me, that sounds like America. If God is unknowable, the best way to live is avoid pain and maximize pleasure. Now, Stoics were a little bit different. They believed that there was a rational principle behind the universe. They called it the, the logos. They believe that your destiny is controlled by fate. And really, you are powerless to change that. Actually, your only defense against fate, what has been determined for you, your only defense is to control what you can genuinely control, meaning your attitude. Calmness. Rather than negative emotions. Control your emotions. Control your attitude. This is still with us today, by the way. Stoicism, if you go on Amazon, and all the, the Stoic books now are they're bestsellers. Jordan Peterson, some of you know that name, University of Toronto psychologist, 12 Principles for Life, his latest book. He's, he's got more hits on YouTube than I can count. Very much appealing to a lot of people, this idea that I can't really know God, but I can control my reaction to life by calming my emotions. Now here's another point of connection here. It says, all the Athenians, I'm going to just read this, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. To me, this sounds like Twitter. I mean, doesn't it? Oh, I got to check my Twitter feed. Okay. I got to check on, you know, what's the first thing I wake up in the morning? I check my email, right? Some of you, what do you do? You check your Instagram, right? You need the latest. We need the latest. You know, I don't want to leave the door. Leave it, go outside without knowing. The... That's what these people were like. Same thing. And I think some of them would have felt very much at home in 2019. So Paul now has the stage. They've brought him to their meeting place. And this is what he says. In verse 22, I pick it up. It says, Paul... Standing in the midst of the Areopagus, I'll talk about that in a minute, kind of like a court, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, and nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, 
for we are indeed his offspring. So Paul is brought before, he's invited before this meeting, the Areopagus, which is kind of like a court. It would have been about 100 men in Paul's day, all wealthy aristocracy and all men, of course. And it seems that Paul's teaching was so different than what they are used to hearing, he would have been subject to the court's approval of, hey, do we let this foreign cult in here or not? This Jesus story, do we give that? Do we let Paul build a temple to that here? Which is not what he wanted to do, but that's how they're thinking. Should this foreign cult have a place in Athens? Let's see how Paul connects with his audience. The first thing he does, if you notice, is he says you're very religious. In other words, he says, you guys, you do have something going on with God. I see that. I see that in your life. Here's what I think is amazing what he does, though. He observes this without being superior. You are religious. In other words, you recognize there's something beyond you. You even have a temple to an unknown God. In other words, I see, I, Paul, I can see you're trying to do this right. This God stuff, he's connecting with them. And the reason that they have unknown God temples is they're trying to cover all the bases. They don't want to offend a God by forgetting him or her. Paul also, if you notice at the end of the passage I just read, he's quoting Greek poets. What he's doing is he's looking at the culture, and instead of saying the Greek culture, and instead of being repulsed by it, He's saying, I wonder if there are points of connection here. When I turn on Athenian TV, I wonder if there are shows that actually I can use to talk about Jesus, that actually have some spark in them that I can talk about. So he's connecting with his audience. He goes on, being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We come to the second point of Paul's speech here. He is confronting their wrong ideas about God. He's pointing out the inconsistencies in their beliefs. He's asking them, wait, if you believe that God is somehow the source behind everything that exists, does it make sense that he's stuck in a building? Does it make sense that you can actually change God by giving him stuff? That you can actually feed him? Does that make sense? He's he's challenging them. He's confronting them. Paul is not shy about pointing out these inconsistencies in what people believe. He's not afraid to persuade. Now, this seems countercultural to us, doesn't it? We are afraid of offending people by questioning their beliefs and trying to help them to see things differently. I know I am, right? That goes against the grain of, this is live and let live, America. But, But I have to say, don't we do this in other contexts? Here's what I mean. If you watch a great movie, don't you go into work the next day and say, you gotta see this. Of course, you won't say it with a New York accent. You need to see this movie. Or if you go to a restaurant that's off the chain, don't you tell people the chicken parmesan is to die for? Or if you find a blog or you read a book, don't you do that? Don't you recommend to people? Don't you even say with, with energy, you've got to do this. 
You've got to try this. Don't we do that? And yet we're reluctant to do this when it comes to talking about God. But I think Paul here gives us some clues on how to do this respectfully and effectively as he confronts the inconsistencies in his audience's beliefs. He's not afraid to persuade. So the connection, the confrontation. I want to look at cause here. We need to go back to verses 26 through 27. In Paul's speech, he says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. You know, in the last few months, I've had, I I think, maybe a, a theological crisis in my life but had a time of questioning. And what I mean by that is, you know, not questioning the existence of God and not questioning Jesus and what he's done for me. That's not it. But I, I, I hit a patch of life where kind of wondering, hmm, what's the point, God? You know, what, what's, what's the point of this? And here's what I mean. God, is this it? What's the point? My day starts like this. I get up in the morning Maybe like a lot of you, get up in the morning, try to connect with God a few minutes, try to read the Bible, try to pray. You know, well, let's start from the beginning. Have coffee first. Amen. Finally got an amen over the coffee. We'll take it. Coffee, okay. Try to read, try to pray. Get cleaned up. No visuals needed, thank you. Get in the car. Get to the train station. Silver Line, okay, wheelie. There we are, going to the big city. I'm on the train now, okay? Earbuds go in, okay? 45, 50 minutes later, I'm in the big city. Get out, go to work, get to the office. Hey, how's everybody doing? Great, okay? Sit at the keyboard, okay? Make some calls, have some meetings. Get back to the train, earbuds. Get home, tired. Alexa, put on my show. Feet go up, a little bit of food, go to bed, and the next day do it all over again. Anybody relate to that? What's the point, God? What's the purpose? Really, I was asking, not rhetorically either, What's the point, God? It just seems like I'm missing something here. What's the purpose of this? What's the purpose? So I will say this. In preparing for this message, I experienced what my good friend Dean Salami would have called a cognitive reset. What's the point? Why am I here? I'm here because God put me here. And I want to be ungrateful. I have a great life. My wife, my daughter, my kids, fantastic. They're off the chain. My job, very secure. That's not it, though. Why am I here, God? Because God put me here. Paul is saying here that your life is planned. Why are you here? What are you doing here in Northern Virginia? Can I just ask, show of hands, how many of you are from other places? How many of you are from other countries? Holy cow. A lot of people. 
You know what Paul is saying? God put you here. And those of you from other countries, my heart goes out to you because I'm sure there are probably sometimes you wish you were back. Maybe sometimes not. But sometimes you, it's familiar. Your kin are there. This is weird here. I'm also from a very exotic place, New York City. It took me a while to get used to living here. Why am I here? Why are you here? It's because God put you here. It says it right here. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Why? Why? Why has God put us here? Why in Northern Virginia? So that those around us would maybe reach out for God and that we may be part of them finding him. I'll read this again. Why are we here? in this place, in this time, so that those around us would maybe reach out for God and that we may be part of them finding him. So what does that mean for us? It means that God put your neighbors where they're at. Yes, and I mean the neighbor, <laughs> the neighbor whose dog poops in your flower bed. Or the neighbor whose son plays the car radio really loud at night when he comes home. Yes, that neighbor. Not an accident. Your job. What are you doing in that job? And I know some of you are probably like, I can't wait to get out. I can't. The job is killing. For right now, you are in that job because there are people at that job that are placed there by God so that they might reach out to him and maybe find him. And we're invited to be a part of that the person in the, in the cubicle next to you, the person in the carpool with you, the person sitting on the train next to you. Hopefully, for me, I hope it's a skinny person because I like to have a lot of room. That person is put there by God. It's saying that God appointed this. He has appointed our times and our places. You're in this church, and some of you, this church is a stretch for you. You're here because God has put you here today now. Let's go on. It says, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Now, what I love about this, this next section is, it shows us the reactions. If you talk about Jesus, this is what you're going to get. Some of them mocked. Some of them are like, this is a babbler. What is this barbarian saying? But others said, we want to hear more about this. So you've got those that mock, you've got the curious, but it also says some people joined him and they believed. So that's what you're going to get. And you don't know that. Paul didn't know that. Before he opened his mouth, he didn't know that. But here's what we see. Some mocked. Some said, we want to hear more. And some are like, amen. So what drove Paul to do this? What motivated him to open himself up to mocking and inconvenience? And if you read the rest of the book of Acts, it's not just inconvenience. Paul suffered. Paul was physically put in jail. He was beaten, all because he opened his mouth and talked about Jesus. For us in this country, it's not as extreme. We just experienced the social status reduction. That's what we get. We might get called, oh, here comes John. Oh, I heard John's a fundamentalist. Did you hear that? Oh, it's... I don't know. I don't want to hear the Jesus thing today. We may get that. No one's going to take our, our house away or throw us in jail. In other parts of the world, it's not that way. There's a cost. 
What motivated Paul to open himself up? He didn't have to do that. You know, he didn't go to Athens to plant a church. He just found himself there. Just like we find ourselves here. You find yourself in your job. He didn't have to do anything. But it has to do with, we see the, the, why he did this. The heart of Paul, in verse 17, it says, his spirit was provoked or he was distressed. He didn't have to go into the city. He didn't have to go into Athens. He could have turned away in disgust, but he didn't. His spirit was provoked. He looked at these temples. He looked at the statues, the idols, and he said, this is not right. This is not right. He was moved to action because he cared. He cared. He cared that these people did not know Jesus. He cared that they were wasting their precious lives, the lives that are intended for God, made for a connection with God. They were wasting them. He cared. And I have to ask you a hard question today, brothers and sisters. Do we care? Do we care? Those of you that are connected to God through Jesus Christ, do we care that the people around us don't know Jesus? Do we care? Do we have the emotional bandwidth to care? Or are you like me, too often wrapped up in your own life and worried about your own stuff? The bills, the projects at work, okay, I'm gaining weight, all these things, right? Will we allow God to build this into us? That when we turn on our TVs or read our blogs or talk to our neighbors or see the state of our country and town, that we would be provoked that we'd be provoked to action. Are we willing to let him build that into us? And finally, why did Paul care? Why did he care? Why would he risk the public mocking and the bodily harm, the social dislocation? Why did he care so much that he would suffer the hardship? He cared because without Jesus, people are lost. Without Jesus, people are lost. Some years ago, the family and I, we went up to Pennsylvania. This is some, some years ago. The kids were small. And we were in the Poconos, I think it was. What do you do when you go on vacation? We shop. <laughs> right? That's the American way. So we wound up at this outlet mall, and we, we were in a clothing store. And the kids were really, yeah, it was a long time ago. My youngest, who's now 17, was actually on my chest in a baby carrier, and the other two, the two olders, running around, playing in the store. And I forgot if we bought anything, but it was time to go. And look around, and can't find my daughter. So at that time, she was four years old. And, hmm, okay, well, let's look at the store. So looking through the store, okay, looking. It's close, right? Just move the clothes out of the way. Okay, don't, don't see her anywhere. Okay. Jillian! Jillian! No answer. Check the rest of the store. All right. Those of you that are parents, you know what, what this is like. We can't find her. We can't find her. So we go to the, the cashier. Have you seen, girl, I'm trying to think what she, what's she wearing? Four-year-old? She's about this big. Have, has anybody seen her? Yeah, what was she wearing? Let me, let me think, let me think. Yeah, did you see anybody go out? Anybody leave the store with a little girl? Did you, anybody see that? No. Okay. Is there another way out of the store? Is there, do you have a back door? Do you have a, any, like a delivery? 
No. Okay. Jillian! She's not there. So I go outside the store, and minutes are passing now. Okay. So they told the mall, the outlet mall, so we're missing somebody. They made a phone call. So the maintenance guy is, is out there, some guy with, uh, with a lot of keys, I remember. So there was a door, the store entrance, there's a door to the side. So this poor guy, I scared, I scared him half to death. I said, I want that door open now. I still remember him fumbling with the keys, poor guy. He opened that door, it's a janitor's closet, there's nothing in there. Go back in the store. And I'm thinking, I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn this place upside down. And then we heard, we found her. She was inside a clothing rack. She had been playing hide and seek or whatever it was, one of those circular racks, okay, with shirts all around. She found a perfect spot to hide inside the rack. Why didn't she come out? She was afraid of getting in trouble. Let me tell you, I never hugged her so tight <laughs> in my life. I went from being the most devastated person to the happiest in the space of a few minutes. Actually, more than a few minutes. She was hiding. She was lost. Some of you today, maybe some of you listening, you're lost. And there's a voice calling your name, calling your name. And you're afraid you're going to get in trouble. She heard my voice and she thought I was angry. Some of you today, you're lost. And you hear the voice call and you're afraid because you think that God is angry and mad at you. He's not. He's calling you to come out and be found. Those of us that have a connection, that we've been found, we are invited today to be part of God's call to find others. If you're listening today and you're lost, someone is calling your name, your father is calling your name, come out and be found. And the rest of us, if we've been found, we are invited to be part of helping those who are lost be found. Two follow-up items. One is... We need to pray. We need to pray for boldness. We need to pray for those times when it seems that the conversation is turning toward God and it's very easy for us to slip out. We need to pray for boldness. We need to pray for energy because we've got too much on our plates. And again, the danger is seeing this as just another thing to do. And we need to pray for opportunity that God would open up those times when it's going to be cool. You're going to be able to share with somebody, hey, I see what you're going through. Let me tell you what helped me. So we pray for boldness. We pray for energy. We pray for opportunity. And we also practice the ministry of invitation. All of you are here because somebody invited you. At one time, somebody said, hey, why don't you come? So we practice that same ministry. We invite, we invite, we invite. We invite our neighbors, we invite our friends, our coworkers. Hey, why don't you come? Why don't you come? 
And I know for, for some people, it takes a lot of invitations until they finally come, but God will use that. We pray for boldness, energy, and opportunity. We invite, we invite, we invite. Please stand with me now. We'll pray. Lord, I'm just so glad that you found me. And I'm not the only one in here that is just glad, glad you found us, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would, well, you'd, you'd give us boldness to reach out, Lord, to connect, to invest the time to understand, Lord, and even to have the boldness to, you know, to challenge people, Lord, to confront them. Lord, I'm well aware that you have to build this into us. Our hearts are open right now, God. Our hearts are open for you to come in and do some surgery on us, to enlarge our hearts and make us care. And Lord, for those who are hearing this and are lost, I know that for them, today is the day. And I pray that they would have the boldness to step out of that clothing rack and listen to your voice. It's in your name we pray, Lord. It says in God's word that they sang a hymn and went out. Well, let's sing verse 2 of Take to the World. Then we can go out. <laughs>